You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David Trench with Sarah Isger. And we are, because of coronavirus concerns, located in multiple different places. Our producer is in D.C. Sarah is in, are you in Virginia, Sarah? I am in Virginia. And to make sure that the sound is good, I am also under the covers of my bed. So it's like (laughs) real self-quarantining now. And also, if you hear cats meowing, they are concerned about me being under the covers of my bed. So you're not supposed to tell everyone how the sausage is made. It's pretty bad sausage today. (laughs) But I guess we believe in radical transparency here at the dispatch. Uh, So we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to briefly touch on the Biden-Sanders debate, and then we are really going to dive in to the law of quarantines, to the ability of governors to ban large gatherings, to all of the legal issues that are raised by this massive state intervention into our association, our freedom of association, into our economy. Um, We have been getting a ton of questions along those lines. So we're going to go into everything from enumerated powers to police power to regulatory takings to quarantines and even to martial law. Now, uh, correctly spelled martial law, M-A-R-T-I-A-L, but I believe it was uh, Marco Rubio today who introduced a new concept of martial law, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L law, uh, which is an underdeveloped area of of constitutional jurisprudence. (laughs) You know what? Uh, I'm the last person to make fun of someone for spelling mistakes. Yes, I know. That's a cheap shot. I'm so sorry, Senator. But it was funny. Um, but let, let's just start. Let's start very briefly with uh, the debate. Um, my 15 word or whatever summary was Joe Biden did what Joe Biden needed to do. And it's still over. I don't know if that's 15 words, but it's roughly. <laughs> uh Yes. There's some interesting polling out of Florida today that actually Sanders has pulled up pretty close with Cuban voters, which is surprising and a little bit unexpected. But last night's debate, uh, Biden dominated the first 45 minutes, which were on coronavirus. Then Sanders, not surprisingly, went just directly after Biden on sort of the progressive laundry list of complaints. Um, And then for the second hour, Biden really shifted pretty far to the left. I think just the best example, though there were plenty of others, was um, that he said in the first 100 days of his administration, he will deport no one. And after that, he will only deport people convicted of a felony in the United States, which is uh, right. a very high bar. But overall, I actually thought Sanders had his worst debate to date because of the coronavirus thing. He was not able to use his normal messaging. and. Yeah. It was really hard for him. He was actually stumbling over his words, sort of meandering answers, things that I just hadn't seen from Sanders this whole time. Yeah, I, you know, I thought that was interesting, too. I mean, normally Bernie comes across as sort of a, a young 78 year old. I mean, he's and 
It's funny when you look at pictures of Bernie honeymooning in the Soviet Union, he looks remarkably in the 80s. He looks remarkably a lot like he does today. And you sort of have this. I totally agree. Timely. He kind of has this timeless quality normally. uh, But I did not get that sense in the first 45 minutes. And you really got a sense that when he's pushed out of Bernie mode, when he's pushed out of talking about the same thing that he's talked about for decades, he really does seem kind of at sea. And he did seem, you know, I think a lot of Bernie's folks were thinking that he was going to come in and he was going to look to be in command and Biden was going to be Biden. And that contrast was going to be reassuring to Bernie supporters and 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 tell Democratic voters that this is the actually the guy you need in the time of crisis. And between the two of them, I didn't think it was all that close in the first 45 minutes. I mean, Biden no, seemed far steadier. If we had more time, I'd, I'd run through some quotes in the transcript. But time and again, the moderators say, would you consider this? What should be done on this specific topic related to coronavirus? And Sanders would try to pivot back to Medicare for all or how the right. economy needed to be redone in general. And they would have to like stop him and say, Senator, we'll get to economic policy eventually. We're asking specifically about coronavirus and whether you would consider mobilizing the military. And then Biden would jump in and say, here's what we did with Ebola. Here's how I would handle it. Here's the specific solution I would propose. You can take issue with any of Biden's specific solutions or whether we're doing enough right now. It's all sort of beside the point. Sanders was not able to engage on the topic. Yes, right. Exactly. And that that was, you know, in my mind, as, as I saw that unfold, I thought a couple of things at once. One, um, this was this this was not in any way, shape or form the debate, the way that Sanders wanted this debate to start. As it went on, you could see where Sanders got more comfortable, as you said, going after Biden. And then the second thing is, especially in the aftermath of Trump's very stumbling address to the nation on Wednesday, where he misstated public policy, his own administration's public policy, and misread the teleprompter, this was actually a good debate for Biden in this, what's going to be this contrast going forward as to who is more on top of things, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And this was a better day for Biden. I'm sure that's going to kind of go back and forth as this campaign goes on. But this was a round for Biden in that in that contest. Uh, but, you know, I, as I said, I mean, I don't this this isn't going to end that conversation. This is going to be, uh, as Jonah said in his own midweek newsletter, I mean, you're going to have a back and forth uh, throughout this entire race as to who's more, who has the, the who's more mentally and, and physically on, uh, fit for the presidency. And to make our very subtle transitions, as we always do in this podcast, you know, the big <laughs> thing right now is that there were four primaries scheduled for Tuesday, um, yeah. Illinois, Ohio, Florida, and Arizona. Will those continue Will some of them continue? Will some of them not? Who does that help? Um, And, you know, yet to be seen. But those obviously are up in the air because of coronavirus and states control their primaries. Uh, And so I say we jump right into the law of coronavirus. Yeah. And and just to give you a sense and to give the, the listeners a sense of how many times we've been asked about that, literally as you were talking just this very moment, Sarah, I got an email that says, what power does the government have over churches during this time? 
I live in northern New Jersey. Our church has canceled all events for at least the next two weeks. Our worship service on Sunday was online. A different small church in the area was planning to hold a service on Sunday. Fortunately, they decided Saturday night to cancel the service, but before they did, the fire department contacted them and said if they're going to hold a service, the church needed to send the town a list of every person's name who attended the service. Um, Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. But you have, let's not, that that's a sense of the kinds of questions we got, but you've got an outline that I think puts this in context. And let's walk everyone, what's the outline going to be? And then let's just dive in. I think you have to start big picture, who's in control, where is the authority lie? So I want to start with, you know, 10th Amendment police powers, states, federal. I got some questions over why mayors are allowed to do some of these actions and not governors. So I want to start with, like, where the power lies. Then I want to walk through the Constitution. Let's start with the First Amendment, assembly, religion. Yeah. Um, I personally have gotten very into the takings question because I think it is (laughs) a little bit unresolved. So I've got some, you know, Fifth Amendment takings law to discuss. And then I think we go into uh, what has not yet happened. There's no particular indication that it will happen, but the suspension clause, the suspension of habeas corpus and uh, martial law, as you said. Right. And and we'll also dabble a little in quarantines. Oh, yes. And quarantine law, which Mm -hmm. is all part of what I'm calling sort of the extreme measures. Quarantining right. people against their will, meaning not yes, yes, what I'm exactly. doing, which is self-quarantining under a quilt blanket. It's getting hot, David. It's getting really hot. <laughs> I know, <it's> get- <laughs> um, well, by the way, David can see me on Skype, and it's uh, <laughs> it is it's hilarious. Like we're having an old school like hiding from your parents, and I have a flashlight underneath the covers while I'm talking to David about the Fifth Amendment takings jurisprudence. I, this is this is a site I never in a context I never thought I'd see or experience takings a takings discussion with a person on Skype under a blanket. But hey, you're, this is the kind of versatility that you bring to the dispatch, Sarah. And so, oh, so wh- why don't you launch into the you know difference okay. between enumerated powers and police power and go yes. from there? So and and you know we're going to start at the simple places. So forgive me, but. The federal government is one of enumerated powers. The Tenth Amendment says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Now, if you remember back in Tea Party days, the Tenth Amendment became all the rage. It was very fashionable. Yeah. Uh, as uh, part of the Tea Party movement was to remove power from the federal government and give it back to the states. Um. You know, circa 1995, uh, enumerated powers restricting the commerce power became hot and fun with Lopez, which struck down uh, a law about um, guns near schools. Morrison, which struck down part of the Violence Against Women Act. Same idea being that the federal government could not uh, exert police powers using the Commerce Clause as like a hook for all things if it was only tangentially related. Well, and just to, to butt in for just a moment to give you a super shorthand uh, primer on the difference between enumerated powers and police powers. And a government subject to, of enumerated powers only has the power given to it by its constitution. Uh, a government that is under that possesses the police power 
has essentially, and, and there are scholars who are going to disagree with me on this, but uh, a widely accepted definition of police power is to say you have all of the powers that are inherent in government except that which is denied by its constitution or by superior law like the U.S. Constitution. So Correct. this is and the often, poli- you know what's listed first among police powers? Public what health. What is listed? F- yes. Yes. <laughs> like this, this is not the first time that we've had public health crises. And I have, I've done lots of um, legal research into the 1918 flu stuff, which I think is really, really fun, by the way. Uh, so, you know, this ain't the first time police powers have been used in public health context. Right. Right. And so the police power, you know, we've, we've seen it used and, and we'll get into this in the quarantine act, uh, quarantine, uh, uh, in the quarantine analysis here, um, quarantines have been used. Police powers have been used for involuntary quarantines. And this is not the, the United States. The American Republic has faced health health scares consistently through its history. And the power of local governments to deal with health scares is considerable. However, it does not repeal the Constitution. So these powers are going to be subject to the Constitution, however, but the way I look at it is, uh, as people will say all the time, no, no right is absolute. Um, what ends up happening as a practical matter is that the balancing test that applies in any sort of constitutional claim against the state is going to adjust in favor of the state in a time of a public health crisis. So- True. For example. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Well, there's been this discussion of, um, you know, some reporting that the president was considering instituting a nationwide curfew. That reporting has backed off to the president is considering asking the states to consider implementing curfews for each state. And I saw these like legal discussions pop up of the president has no authority to do this, um, which is like what I'm going to call true asterisk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because yeah, we'll get it, you, to where he would right right so i think that but the the front line here is as a general matter if a state possesses the police power a governor is going to be able to say everyone stay inside your home however i'm going to be able to to either in in uh i'm going to e- either be able to go to a courthouse literally or virtually and challenge that. And I think there, and where, and where would this, how would this turn out? So a blanket ban on assembly is going to be analyzed much more under the, the uh, freedom of association and the free speech, uh, free speech clauses of the first amendment and much less under religious liberty. Now, if a, if a ban was only on church gatherings, and not on concerts and not on meeting up in bars, et cetera, then you would have a free exercise claim because it would be targeted to churches, probably lose unless you had, and the state would probably lose unless you had an evidence that, you know, a pandemic was coming from churches only. Although, uh, you know what's funny, David? In 1918, um, I just enjoy these because I think we have this huge misconception of what life was like 100 years ago. Right. Uh, in 1918... The churches were upset because they were targeted uh, and saloons were allowed to stay open. Now, <laughs> of course, what we use saloons for now versus then is maybe a little bit different, but not 
wildly different. Uh, so yeah. really, most of the targets in 1918 were on movie theaters and churches, in part because they were large gatherings that were deemed sort of right. unnecessary. And there were lawsuits, particularly from the movie theaters. Those guys were, were ready to roll with their lawsuits. Um <laughs> Wichita, Kansas, Terre Haute, Indiana, Roanoke, Virginia. There's an Arizona one. Uh, it all it went up to the Arizona Supreme Court, and um, I don't think this will come as a huge shock to you. The Arizona Supreme Court said no. <laughs> right. <laughs> that absolutely, uh, local public health officials did have constitutional authority. Constitutional meaning under the Arizona Supreme or uh, Constitution to compel him, this movie theater owner, to close his place of business. Well, and and so if you're taking a, an analysis, even strict, let's let's assume strict scrutiny would be applied again, not in the religious liberty context, because we're not seeing specific bans on churches right now. What we're seeing are bans that include churches. It's a Correct. neutral, it's a neutral law of general applicability. So back to our Smith test, exactly. So we're going to have to go back to is a general ban is a generalized ban on gatherings of, say, more than 50 uh, or a general a generalized closing of certain kinds of establishments that have more than X number of people, is that going to be constitutional? And even if you apply strict scrutiny, which will be a compelling governmental interest accomplished through the least restrictive means, in this context, the compelling governmental interest standard is going to be, that test is going to be met. Oh, it's not um, even close. And this is why... For, you know, all of the complaints about Smith, Employment Division of Oregon versus Smith, um, this would reinvigorate Smith in a heartbeat. This is why Smith existed, was for something more like this, which is uh, common sense tells you, obviously, you don't have to leave, you know, clothes, restaurants, bars, gyms, movie theaters, but leave open churches because they're a place of religion. It can't work that way. And as we saw but in if South stri- Korea, strict scrutiny that- applies even even without Smith. Strict scrutiny would still permit the government. What that's what I'm saying is strict scrutiny would permit the government to implement a ban in this circumstance. Good point. And you look at South Korea, where um, the patient 31 went to a buffet and a church and infected a thousand people. Like, you know, evidence piece number one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. So in this circumstance, now we could get to gray areas where we're not dealing with a illness that is 10 times at least more dangerous than the flu, where the WHO has not declared a pandemic, where you would have you would have situations where just invoking the term public health is not a get out of the first amendment free card. But in this circumstance, as we see what's happening in Italy, now what's happening in Spain, what has happened in China, the idea that this wouldn't meet that strict scrutiny, I think, is fantastical. And and that's why I have not seen uh, the big religious liberty firms like my former employer, Alliance Defending Freedom, or ACLJ, or Beckett, running into court on these ban- – you know, on these uh, – uh, to stop any of the – bands of, you know, large gatherings, et cetera, et cetera. Now, some of it, though, is that we're on the front end of this. Something that we also saw in 1918 and some of these others is the real legal challenges come on the back end, where (laughs) some people think the pandemic's over and other people don't, and the rules haven't changed, and they think we should be able to reopen our church. 
and it gets sort of wishy-washy um, in one write-up that I saw. Uh, <laughs> with massive noncompliance, local public health leaders were ultimately unsuccessful in exerting full control as the 1918, you know, 1919 by this point. Right, right. On. Yeah. Yeah, on the front end, I think the legal answer is easier. And then on the back end, then everything starts to get gray again. And the, right. and the compelling... And the compelling governmental interest test is less easy to meet. But on the front end, where we are now, I think in response to reader questions, especially in those states where there has been a measurable outbreak, the governors are going to have a wide latitude to implement pretty broad and what seem to be authoritarian bans on large gatherings. They're going to be able to do that under their police power, and that in, that that police power will survive a First Amendment challenge. At least that's my view. Can I also take a little detour to mayors? Yes, please. So I had a friend say, um, why is my mayor allowed to do this? This is clearly only a power given to the governor. And, of course, his mayor was of one political party and his governor was of another. He obviously right. trusted um, the one over the other political party to make these rules. And I think there is some misinformation about there. He thought that churches had been specifically targeted, um, things like that. So here's the deal on the mayors, because it's actually a pretty interesting question, because a lot of these are coming from mayors. Bill de Blasio, for instance, um, went to the YMCA today and mandates that all gyms close by 8 p.m. tonight. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, he had to he couldn't lose his gains, Sarah. He couldn't lose his gains. Yeah, I get it. Uh, So. Mayors, this is actually an ongoing legal dispute because of the sanctuary city uh, immigration context. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mayors have said that they are instituting these sanctuary city policies where they're not going to arrest immigrants. And the governor has said, that's not accurate. You will do this because the state uh, controls. So while this is sort of an ongoing legal question, let me at least give the argument for why mayors are on very solid footing. Uh, in this case, where both agree, actually. But the cities exist as a political entity uh, because of the state. Right. The state grants the charter for the city, uh, rules for annexation, things like that. So the argument goes something like the mayor's power is derived from the state. So in theory, the governor could tell a mayor that his quarantine policies were not appropriate. But if and until that happens, the mayor acts with the full police power, in this case of a public health crisis, with the authority of the state. So that's all to say, if you think you can ignore your mayor because they're not the governor, uh, you're going to lose that fight. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) okay, to all all listeners uh, and readers who have asked about the authority to ban of their governors and mayors. And if, especially if the mayors are acting pursuant to the authority granted them by the state, can they ban, if they do choose to, can they ban these large gatherings consistent with the First Amendment under the present facts? Yes. I'm not saying every single time they invoke public health, but under the present facts. Well, and I think we now, get to an interesting case, by the way, if people were assembling to protest and petition the mayor's office about a type of closure in, let's call it, eight weeks. So after the CDC has said things are fine, but this one mayor has decided to leave things open, and so people assemble as an act of civil disobedience to petition the mayor. 
that that's an interesting question, but one that we're not even close to yet. Not yet. That will be a future advisory opinion when, Lord <laughs> willing, this thing is fading away. So let's move on to this other really interesting issue, which is uh, when bars and restaurants and gyms are ordered to be closed, they cannot function. They lose their economic viability. Is yes. this a regulatory taking under the Fifth Amendment, which the state must compensate these businesses for? And Sarah, you've been looking at it. I've been looking at it. I love your. I'd love to hear your first your first thought. Whew. So this all started, as will not surprise anyone who's been listening, in a uh, dinner conversation with Scott, my husband, where I said, uh, I, you know, I think they have a big problem here because on the one hand, well, let me give you my, my hypo. Okay. My hypo is that you own a restaurant in a zoned area where you can only use that property for commercial purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, in some zoning, you can only use it for a restaurant that holds X number to X number of people. You know, zoning can get pretty specific. So on the yes. one hand, you're zoned in on one side. And then on the other hand, the state comes in and says, and now you cannot use your property for that purpose that it is zoned for exclusively. Right. Thereby restricting all economic viability for your property. And this gets pretty interesting because the two cases that we're really going to, I think, be spending most of our time talking about here is Penn Central, uh, 1978 Mm -hmm. Supreme Court opinion by Brennan. This has sort of a four-part wishy-washy test, as the Supreme Court is wont to do from time to time. Yes. (laughs) And it's, you know, a balancing test of, well, on the one hand, on the other hand. And then (laughs) you have um, Lucas... 1992 Scalia opinion, which uh, sort of cabins off Penn Central and says, yeah, yeah, that test is all well and good, the balancing test. But if there's a deprivation of all economically beneficial use from the perspective of the property owner, deprivation is of the property itself. Right. So... That's why the hypo matters, by the way, because if you just happen to own a bar in the middle of nowhere, but you could use that to be a farm, you could use it to be your house, anything else, uh, I don't think you're very close to the Lucas test. You're much closer to the Penn Central four-part on the one hand, on the other hand. But in my zoning example, I think there's a problem. And so then, by the way, there's a remedy issue. On the one hand, the regulation can be invalidated as a denial of due process. Uh, If this were a long-term regulation, that may be more interesting, but we know this is going to be short-term. Or the regulation may be deemed a taking requiring compensation, at least for the period in which the regulation was in effect. That's what we're talking about. Uh, I don't think this will be seen as a due process issue. And I'm going to go and throw a third case at you. Ooh, do it. Tahoe Sierra Preservation Council, Inc., v. Tahoe Regional Planning Agency. Yeah. Um, And, man, I tell you, I I knew we would get into interesting cases uh, in advisory opinions. I never knew we'd be pulling up old Tahoe Sierra. I know. This is an an interesting case for two reasons. One is I've never really seen – a case that begins with odes to natural beauty as undisputed facts. So, 
It says, all agree that Lake Tahoe, Tahoe is uniquely beautiful, that President Ray Clinton was right to call it a national treasure that must be protected and preserved, and that Mark Twain aptly described the clarity of its waters as not merely transparent, but dazzling, dazzlingly, brilliantly so. So it's like that in the case, a statement of undisputed facts. That's hilarious. But <laughs> so essentially the, the case was to try to preserve the clarity of the lake from algae, uh, to keep the lake from going from blue to green or brown the way we see a lot of you know lakes, especially in the south, any kind of reservoir lake in the south is like this deep green color typically. To keep it from going blue, green or brown, they put a moratorium on development in certain areas for 32 months. So this was a temporary moratorium on development. Wasn't the quite the total regulatory the end of all reg, you know all value of the property but it was a, a right. temporary and worth and, mentioning and, here in lucas you know our extreme on the other side lucas was um he owned some property on the beach and the charleston county uh whatever wild dunes you know development thing they said he couldn't build anything on that property because of fear of public erosion of the beach. So he right. couldn't do anything with the property. He could own it and say it was his, but that was about it. That was the total deprivation. So what you're talking about is both temporary uh, and and not a total deprivation, correct? Correct. So it's not a total deprivation and it is temporary. But the the as I read the court, um, the more that the more temporary it is, um, the less likely there's going to be a, yep. a finding of a regular ter- regulatory taking. So I would say, I would look at it like this. The less total and less total and more temporary you lose. The more total it is, it really had better be pretty darn temporary. <laughs> <laughs> and so if it's total, but it's temporary, if that temporary is stretching into years, it would be hard. It would hard for me to see the court saying, especially considering that some of the dissenting opinions here were uh, from justices with a more conservative outlook, who now control this. The, their judicial philosophy is more dominant at the court. So I would say again, what we're dealing with on the front end, it's a very similar analysis to, as to last time, in my view. On the front end, they're going to be okay, but if this thing keeps going and going and going. The case for compensation as a regulatory taking is gonna is gonna uh, get better and better. That's my. I think that's true. I think, I think that the total deprivation here again goes back to the zoning that's on the property to begin with. Um, I do wonder whether in the interim, let's say this uh, lasts for ten weeks, and let's say right. unlike restaurants where they're still allowing carryout, um, well, actually some of these are written pretty carefully. The Austin one that I read. Your movie theater can't house 250 people to show a movie. However, you can use that space for something else with fewer people. Right. So they know, like, they're aware of some of the ins and outs of of this. But um, let's imagine the gym, for instance. They're telling the gyms they cannot function at all. Um, Right. If that is zoned in a pretty loosey-goosey way where... It's not commercial only. You could use it and rent it, you know, on Airbnb or something. 
I think that you end up with the Penn Central test of, look, there's some economic viability still to your property. I also think it'd be interesting if someone who was commercially zoned in, you know, a gym that said this basically has to be a gym. Right. um, If they said, okay, well, I'm going to follow that, but now I'm not going to follow the zoning law. Could they then enforce the (laughs) zoning rules during this temporary other rule? Uh, That's an interesting question to me, and I'm not totally sure that they could... Again, with the argument being you have to have some economic viability for the property now. Yeah, I just keep going back to the thought that, uh, you know, as you were pointing out earlier in our talk about public assembly, all of this on the front end is going to be legally easy. Yeah. Like if, if my if my gym decides, well, you know, the zoning, we're only zoned for this particular use. We're shut down, but we're going to defy our zoning right now. Right now, we're going to do it. I think a court throws them out of – they're tossed out of court so fast. <laughs> so if fast. We're dealing with, if we're dealing with an extended period of time in which the numbers have dropped, but the political – you know, the, the, it's very clear that the curve has been flattened, as everyone talks about flattening the curve, and not just flattened, but we're on the downslope pretty clearly, and you see people all over the country reopening – and we're still not, you know, then you could begin to see in, uh, uh, cases filed where they're just going to get stronger and stronger the longer this goes and the more the he- public health crisis eases. Um, and you know what? Transition, that brings us to Ex parte Milligan <laughs> and an so- important case after the crisis had, be- had eased. But here's something interesting, David, that is very relevant to the conversation we're about to have to me. Okay. The Supreme Court has said that they are not hearing cases right now. Mm-hmm. They've pushed off their March docket. And uh, according to my appellate expert that lives in my house, uh, some of his appellate arguments look like they're going to be pushed off as well. Um my father, for those who have been very Google savvy, is a bankruptcy judge. <laughs> and uh, and they're having to put in sort of interesting plans of telehearings and stuff like that, which is actually not unheard of at district and Article One court levels, uh, especially in Houston, for instance. We have hurricanes on the regular uh, that shut down people's ability to get into court. And so there is pretty good precedent for calling into court stuff like that in public health emergencies that being said we're creeping pretty close (laughs) to a time where someone could argue that the courts are not open for business right now if that's the case things get interesting and and let me let me vent about this for just a moment because (laughs) you can e-file now i mean so this is not this is 2020. It's not 1920. It's not 1990. Uh, you can e-file. You have no due process right to an oral uh, oral argument, certainly at the appellate level. Um, there is no need for oral argument to deliver justice. I mean, especially at the <laughs> Supreme Court. I mean, you have... 
these cases at the Supreme Court, these cases at the appellate level are briefed out the wazoo. Uh, the, you're, you're talking about hundreds of pages of briefs, amicus briefs, amicus briefs on the other side. The Supreme Court has all it needs to decide these cases. And they decide uh, and cases based on the briefs alone regularly. 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 Uh, and so, and in I fact, don't many understand. say that no, like <laughs> many people have a hard time pointing to any oral argument that has swayed a decision one way or the other. <laughs> well, and you know what? That's, let's put a pin in that because we may have some special guests coming on the Advisory Opinions podcast. Ooh, good call. And we will ask those special guests if they okay. agree to come. Okay. Um, but, but so I would say in most certainly civil proceedings, um, that business can continue as usual. Appellate proceedings, business can continue as far as the business of the court reading briefs and deciding cases can and should continue, in my view. Where it gets really dicey are criminal trials where Mm -hmm. you're going to have a right to confront your accuser and a jury has to weigh credibility. And there are speedy trial considerations that are bedrock constitutional issues. And so once again, we're at an issue like right now, right away at this moment, you're going to have you're going to be able to cancel and close or postpone trials. But as this drags on, I mean, you've got people, potentially innocent people in conditions of crowded jails, unable to obtain a hearing. Yikes. That's my legal. That that would be the legal um declaration. Yikes. Let me throw out the other hypothetical that you almost like touched on. Imagine a pandemic outbreak in the jails, which, by the way, BOP and DOJ are terrified of and um, very aware of the possibility of this happening. Right. Uh, if coronavirus broke out at a jail with a cloistered population, um, you could imagine various defense attorneys filing habeas petitions on behalf yes. of those prisoners. What, what what would the courts do? And this gets to, I mean, let's, let's get to the suspension clause, right? So yeah. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. Some interesting notes there. One, you'll notice it's an Article One. It is not a presidential power. Mm-hmm. There is an implied, perhaps, presidential power in the commander-in-chief powers. But the fact that, you know, as good um, textualists, you will note, uh, if it is enumerated in Article One, but not enumerated in Article Two, that undermines your implied power argument in Article Two for sure. Indeed. Um, and that's where uh, the second part is whether cases of rebellion or invasion would count with a public health crisis. I think the fact that it says the public safety may require it would meet that standard. But uh, in theory, that could be debated. But regardless, we get to Milligan, our little, our civil war friend, our, our, re- <laughs> our rebel in Indiana. Yes, and tell, uh, tell, give the people what they want about Milligan. Uh, so Lambden Milligan is his name he was arrested in Indiana as a Confederate sympathizer like you do Uh, 
Indiana was part of a military district, and Milligan was tried by military commission and sentenced to die by hanging. After his convention, he uh, filed for habeas, arguing that the whole thing was unconstitutional. It takes a long time to get to the courts. The Supreme Court doesn't decide this until well after the Civil War is over and Abraham Lincoln is dead. And they say, uh, uh, martial law destroys every guarantee of the Constitution. Civil liberty and this kind of martial law cannot endure together. The antagonism is irreconcilable and in conflict. One or the other must perish. And uh, they voted for rule of law, in case you're curious, between which yes. of the two they picked. <laughs> yes. Um, but you'll notice they did not decide this in 1863 in the middle of the Civil War. Yes. Yeah, which we were slacking back and forth. And I said, I wonder how this comes out in 1863, say a month before Gettysburg, when Lee is invading Pennsylvania. Uh, it feels like this might have come out differently. And in fact, we have a different case, ex parte Quirin. Different case, different facts. I mean, this was German saboteurs in the United States decided in 1942, and it comes out in favor of the military commissions. So um, this goes, I, I, I think this, if there's a consistent principle I could get to here that we keep getting and keep discovering is early in the crisis, maximum legal discretion to public officials later in the crisis or post-crisis, <laughs> a lot of backfill on the rule of law. Uh, yeah, I mean, is, judges are humans, too. Judges can get coronavirus. Yep. Judges want to not be the thing that caused, you know, 10,000 deaths because they were like, yeah, of course you have to be able to go to church. Yeah, exactly. Can we spare a couple of minutes on quarantining? And then... Let's uh, do and it. Then, all right. So... Interestingly enough, I mean, quarantining is a practice. This is something that going, I mean, way back in American constitutional law has been held to be a part of the police power of the states is quarantining. Uh, quarantining, just to be clear, is, is distinct from isolation. Isolation is something is after you've all, already been diagnosed, can you be kept away from people? Less controversial, obviously, than quarantining, which is typically... You've been exposed or we believe you've been exposed and we're going to in there and we're again speaking of involuntary quarantine, not voluntary quarantine because there's no constitutional issue with voluntary. So involuntary quarantining, what is the power of the state to do this? And this raises, Sarah, a fascinating catch 22 because the scholarly consensus seems to be that involuntary quarantining should be evaluated very much in the way that we value uh, that we evaluate involuntary civil commitments of people who have mental disabilities. And so that there is, this is a deprivation of liberty. Due process attaches to a deprivation of liberty. The best analogy is to involuntary commitment of, uh, you know, people who have are having mental difficulties. There seems to be a broad uh, amount of agreement on that. However, Nobody has quite figured out how to vindicate or how to create a court challenge that actually works because involuntary quarantining happens immediately upon exposure. It's not like you have a court proceeding and then you become involuntarily quarantined. You are quarantined. Well, the quarantine period is usually only what? About 
two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And the thing about American court proceedings is that, uh, did you ever hear the lawyer's joke, Sarah, that the great thing about America is that everyone gets their decade in court? (laughs) Uh, They take a while. So by the time the court proceeding is over, you're out and it's over. And so then you're left with what? A suit for damages. Well, who's going to impose damages under a qualified immunity regime for someone who in good faith quarantines you based on exposure to coronavirus, to smallpox? Well, there's no smallpox. Coronavirus, smallpox historically. Coronavirus, Ebola, H1N1, you name it. SARS, who's going to then impose personal liability on someone who's went ahead and involuntarily confined you for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and then when the court case is over, um, where's the prospective relief? There's no injunction available because you're already out. And so what ends up happening is that while in theory there exists a due process right to challenge a quarantine, in practice, because quarantines tend to be quite temporary, you're kind of just going to get quarantined and you're not going to have a real uh, viable judicial avenue to challenging it. Because even if you get an injunction in a lower court immediately, let's say you've got great connections, you fly into the court, you get a TRO in 72 hours or 48 hours to release you There's going to be an immediate appeal. There will be a stay on appeal because the stakes are so high. And we're right back to that catch-22. So that's my quick quick take on Do you think that this, um, that same quasi-analysis would apply to, uh, so for instance, a curfew goes into effect in a lot of places tonight at 8 p.m. Right. If at 9 p.m. I decide to go skip down the street sneezing on people, although I don't... (laughs) Sneezing is actually, I don't think, a, a symptom of coronavirus. So uh, licking people, um, <laughs> as as I do, uh, yes. and they arrest me. Right. I mean, is this a similar analysis in terms of quarantine analysis? It's not that I'm being quarantined uh, because they think I'm sick. I'm being arrested for failing to observe a public health law. Yeah, I think if you want damages, you're going to be out of luck. Uh, If you want to be released, if there's going to be a imposition of, say, a 15 day or 20 day jail sentence or whatever it is for violating the curfew, you're likely going to be out of luck while you challenge the constitutionality of the curfew statute. Um, The only advantage you'd have over the civil quarantine process is at least you would be able to get retrospective relief to sort of say if it was an unconstitutional curfew imposition, an unconstitutional arrest to have your record expunged and cleansed. So you would at least be able to have some some degree of of release. You know what else, David? I love tying this into like, you know, sanctuary city law and everything else. You know what else would come up at this point? Qualified immunity. (laughs) Oh, I know. That's what we're talking about. Qualified (laughs) immunity. No damages available. So in theory, it's one of those circumstances where you could have your rights violated by an imprudent, unconstitutional quarantine and have zero recourse because of qualified immunity, which goes back to last week. Now, do you still, it's a good tie-in. It is. No, I I still believe qualified immunity should go away, that if somebody was subjected to an unlawful quarantine, 
that they should be able to receive damages for that. Now, they might not be very many, what, you know, two weeks of lost wages, three weeks of lost wages, or lost wages for a lost job. If there was an evidence of bad faith, punitive application of a quarantine or corrupt application of quarantine, you know, punitive damages. But, um, but yeah, I think that violations of civil rights should be compensated, period. But, uh, and again, uh, that's not to say it should come out of, you know, the doctor's pocket, but the public fisc. Well, this is uh, where the clearly established thing, you and I, I think this is like our friction on qualified immunity. Um, I think you could find places where the law is far more clearly established, but somehow the courts keep finding that it's not clearly established. Right. I think in the case of a national pandemic where the law actually is not clearly established... Uh, qualified immunity has a lot more room in my heart. Well, I would say what would end up happening, and this might be a downside to my argument, is that a court in a face of a real viable threat to public health would be more likely to just go ahead and rule the quarantine lawful in the first place. Which is a separate and interesting problem. Like if the courts are going to lean one way or the other in the middle of said pandemic, as we've seen, um, You'd, you almost want – you get better law if you wait. <laughs> true, true. And I, and I think quarantining in a pandemic is always going to be viewed uh, much more hospitably than quarant- individual quarantining in non-pandemic circumstances. Some of the facts surrounding some the, uh, one of the Ebola quarantines are really pretty chilling. Like a nurse comes back, doesn't test positive – uh, is denied even the ability to shower for days on end. Like, I don't even know, you know, maybe there's a medical reason for that, but, you know, that, that and and then people were reporting on her if she even received groceries. I mean, it was I remember was this, bad. actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. So some of the facts are, can be pretty egregious. Um, and that being said, um, and... <laughs> My heart goes out to her and I'm, uh, you know, but for the grace of God, uh, if they had not taken extreme measures and for any reason, a second person had gotten Ebola in the country yeah. and then a fourth person and an eighth person, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about how insane it was that they quarantined that nurse and wouldn't let her shower. Yeah, true, true. And which, uh, again, goes back to what we were saying at, at the very beginning and have been saying throughout that public health is a core, uh, the police power in co- and is, it absolutely encompasses the power to protect the public health um, in much the same way that the, the uh, authority of the chief executive of the United States is at its apex. And when national security is at stake, the authority, the police power of your governors and by extension, your mayors is going to be its apex when public health is at stake. And where you have to be vigilant is to make sure that they don't abuse that authority or use it as a pretext. Um, but in this circumstance, the odds of that, the odds of a court finding any sort of abuse or finding of a pretext are pretty low. In 1918, by the way, the United States has 10 cities with more than half a million in population, the largest of which was New York City with five and a half million residents. There's a lot that's very similar about 1918. But having only 10 cities with 500,000 people, uh, you know, this that's why this has the capacity to be so large 
we're living on top of each other. Yeah. Or in my case, yeah. underneath the sheets of my bed. <laughs> well, as long as you're social distancing from everybody else, you're, you're good. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they also... It's amazing, actually, how little there is on the economic impacts of the 1918 flu, as I was looking around in some of the scholarly journals. Um, you know, it was considered unprecedented at the time. And we have, like, very specific local numbers. But there just really isn't a whole lot on the macro effects. Like, one department store in Little Rock, Arkansas, which had had business of $15,000 daily, about $200,000 in our terms, Um uh, Went down to half of that. Uh, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I think the pandemic, you know, part of the economic versus uh, human, uh, economic toll versus human toll, if the, if the coronavirus does not take a large human toll, I think the history of the coronavirus will be written much more in economic terms. If it does take a large human toll, that will far overshadow in history's verdict or in history's uh, telling any of the economic tolls. Um, but it is interesting that you that the economic toll of of Spanish flu is not re- quickly, readily, and easily available. Although some listeners may correct us on that. Well, I, I hope so. Please send it in if you have it. Um- You know, the other thing to note about Spanish flu is in the spring of 1918, uh, there was the Spanish flu over here, and it was just far less deadly. Over the summer, it kind of went away. When it came Mm. back in the fall, it had mutated and become a far deadlier strand, which is what we call the Spanish flu pandemic. Um, That's fascinating. I would just, I would note that it's March. (laughs) Oh, on that cheery note. uh, Uh, what are you, David, what are you um, and your family, any, any good books, any good binging, recommendations? So we're going to start a film festival tonight. Oh, gosh. Our, our, 12 year, our 12-year-old has not yet been introduced to the majesty and the glory of the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy. So, the, <laughs> so that, that will start tonight. But that's only three days. So uh we're i'm open to suggestions i'm considering re-binging battlestar galactica mm. all four seasons and i realized much to my shame sarah that after years of playing world of warcraft i had allowed my character uh ricky bobby to languish in the virtual world at level 110 when the max level is now level 120 so i might li- re- uh, level ricky bobby to 120 that will be ours. Um, and I, I'm, recon- I'm considering starting Better Call Saul season one, episode one, and then just roll straight through all the way to the end of Breaking Bad, even though Better <laughs> Call Saul is not over. But I think uh, that, that could be a very a solid plan. Okay, you have a plan. I like, I like that you've given this some real thought. I have noticed people <laughs> online of my age group all talking about the same thing, which is funny because I th- I felt very alone and isolated in this. And it's been really pleasing to see that I'm not the only one who did not watch The Sopranos. Yes. And I think that's because at the time that it came out, you had to be like an HBO subscriber, like with cable. Yes. Right. And, you know, I was in college. That wasn't a thing. Um, we didn't have the money for that, let alone like even the 
technology, like in, in college dorms, to have HBO, as far as I know. Uh, so, <laughs> and also you had to watch it every week. The only thing I was watching every week at that point was The West Wing. So, uh, we have started The Sopranos. We actually started it pre-coronavirus, which is even funnier, but we're, we're in the throes of it. Um, we also, like, I mean, binged in the truest sense. I did not move off my couch for six hours. Um, McMillions, the documentary on the McDonald's monopoly fraud scheme. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, David, we need to dedicate like a whole thing to McMillions. My uh, documentaries, I can rank all my documentaries. It's like it's a glass menagerie for me that I curate and love. Um, <laughs> the, the best one is obviously the 30 for 30 OJ made in America. Nothing has beaten it. Not even close. Yeah. But I think McMillions now comes in second, which moves wow. the jinx to number three. Well, I've been trying to get uh, Nancy to watch McMillions, but it's too painful for her, Sarah, because as she says, I spent too many years of my childhood trying faithfully to win McDonald's Monopoly, and it was oh. all a lie. Oh, but David, <laughs> the characters, like the opening characters, you will be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they found these people. And then in the middle, you're like, why are we spending so much time on this? Maybe it's dragging. And like the jinx, the last 10 minutes, you're like, oh my gosh. Amazing. So okay. You. All right. Well, I'll watch it. And can I give you two other documentary? Yes. Uh, okay. King of Kong. Have you seen this one? <laughs> nope. And I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. It is one man's quest to obtain the world record in Donkey Kong. I knew I knew the... you were going to say Donkey Kong. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say. Okay. And if you watch King of Kong, you will thank me. And you'll publicly okay. thank me. And the other one is called New York Doll. And New York Doll, it's by the same guy who did Cheer on Netflix. Yes. And Last Chance You. And it's sort of his first documentary, his breakout documentary. And it's the story of a punk rocker turned Mormon librarian. (laughs) And it is excellent. Excellent. So those are my two obscure documentary references. I like it. Have you seen Three Identical Strangers? I have not. Okay, I'm adding that one to your list then. Okay, Three Identical Strangers. Well, I'll start you think, with think, By the way, if you, if you read it, it's about um, three identical triplets separated at birth. And, okay. You know, you're, and then they find each other and you're like, okay, that's like sort of an interesting premise. And so I went into it with like those expectations. But actually, there's a lot of twists and turns and it gets legally kind of interesting there. Oh, good. Okay. Well, there you have it, uh, listeners. Those are our, our those are our binge recommendations during our self quarantine, social distancing time, and we'll be back with you again on Thursday, and we're going to have our dispatch podcast on Wednesday, and we're going to continue at the dispatch to cover all of the twists and turns of this coronavirus, the economic and cultural, and social and health effects of the coronavirus crisis. And please go rate us at iTunes. Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts. And please become a member of thedispatch.com. And we will talk to you again on Thursday. (laughs) 